You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. All right. How's everybody? Good. All right. Oh, got a woo. Okay, good. All right. Good deal. Good deal. Good to see you tonight. We're in Psalm 7. Psalm 7. We're continuing our journey through the Psalms. You can go ahead and make your way there. I'm glad you are here tonight. Study God's Word. We're going to look at Psalm 7 and then we will um, pray together and, uh, and go from there. Psalm chapter 7. Let me uh, pray for us and then we'll uh, get started tonight. Father, we're grateful for your grace and your mercy and your love. We're grateful, Lord, for um, your presence with us tonight. We're grateful, Lord, that when we study the Bible, we don't have to study uh, alone and we're not left to our own devices or our own thinking or our own wisdom. Uh, Lord, the, the Bible teaches us that spiritual things are spiritually understood. And you give us the Holy Spirit as a gift to illuminate our minds so that we can, Lord, peer into the Scriptures and grasp the truth and apply that truth to our lives. So we're just grateful for the work of the Holy Spirit tonight and pray that you would move among us. Pray this would be a spiritually uh, profitable time for us all. And we will thank you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Psalm chapter 7. We are journeying through the Psalms, taking one Psalm per week. Just by way of reminder as to the theme, the major theme of the Psalms, uh, we see the quote there from Dr. Kendall Easley, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So the Psalms remind us week after week after week that God is worthy to be praised and worthy of our trust, uh, whether we are on the mountaintop or whether we are walking through the valley. God is worthy, and we see that all through the Psalms. And then John Piper picks up on the reality that the book of Psalms is actually a collection of Hebrew hymns. And he writes this, The Psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And the fact that we have the book of Psalms uh, helps us to understand that, that. That from God's perspective, our emotions are a big deal. That's why we connect so much with the Psalms. And Psalm 7 is interesting It's a psalm for those who are being slandered. Those who are being slandered. So there's some interesting conversation we're going to have tonight. But let's just read it together, and then we will jump in and see what God has to say to us tonight. It says there, a Shigion of David. A Shigion is, again, most scholars believe a musical term. I don't know exactly what it means, but it's something related to music, probably a Shigion of David, 
which he sang to the Lord concerning, he gives a little bit of context here, some of the Psalms do, concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now look in verse 1. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I've done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me, you have appointed a judgment. Let, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Powerful, powerful words, especially understood in the historical context that we see in the, the little subscript before verse 1. Notice there it says, this Shigion, this musical number, was sang by David, so David wrote it, to the Lord, and he gives us, some, again, some information concerning something specific, concerning the words, that's important, so this deals with something that was said, the words of Cush, and then it tells us that Cush, who said these words, was a Benjaminite. And so what does that tell us? Well, the phrase... Benjamin, or the word Benjaminite is interesting because when you look back at the unfolding story of David, we see the tribe of Benjamin play an interesting role. David's predecessor was King Saul. And if you are familiar, familiar with that story, King Saul became insanely jealous of David and tried to kill him uh, many, many times until uh, Saul was killed in a battle with the Philistines and David became the king. But Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Everybody got that? That's important. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so the Benjaminites were loyal, for the most part, to Saul. So they, by and large, were opposed to David. They were on Saul's side, opposed to uh, David. In fact, during the conflict that Saul had with David, he even calls on Benjamin to, be, to, to, give, them, uh, to give him their allegiance. It says in 1 Samuel 22, 7 and 8, Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? So basically he's saying, hey, don't go with David, go with me. Uh, he won't treat you the way I'll treat you. I, I'm one of you. I'm from Benjamin. You need to be loyal to 
me. And the historical record tells us that the tribe of Benjamin remained loyal to Saul even after his death. In fact, when Saul was killed by the Philistines, and a lot of people don't realize this, a civil war ensued between the followers of David and the followers of King Saul. And those who were most loyal to Saul were from the tribe of Benjamin. It tells us that in 2 Samuel 3.1. The, the tribe of Benjamin took the lead in opposing the house of David. Uh, it tells us also in 2 Samuel 2.15, 25, and 31 that the, 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 the house of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, was opposed to David. It took about eight years of conflict for David to become the king of Israel. That's how... Um, that's how opposed Benjamin was to David's rule. And the people of Benjamin, even after he became king, held a grudge against David. Even after David united all of the tribes, the people of Benjamin, a lot of them, still did not like David. When David's son, Absalom, rebelled against him, a man from Benjamin named Shammai cursed David as he fled Jerusalem. I mean, just cursed him. Uh, as he left. And Shammai was from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, After the rebellion was put down, Absalom's rebellion, a different man from Benjamin named Sheba led another revolt against David. 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. So the folks from the tribe of Benjamin really didn't like David. So it's not surprising to see that Cush, a Benjaminite, said some words that drove David to prayer. And so Cush is saying some things about David that are wrong. They are words of slander. And David is coming to God for his protection. And so the ESV Study Bible says this, This psalm provides a vehicle by which those unfairly criticized and persecuted may call to God for help. So if you've ever been slandered, If you've ever been unfairly criticized, unfairly persecuted, you can identify with this psalm because that's what David was going through. Now, there's no record in the Bible other than this passage about Cush. So we don't know exactly what his deal was. We don't know exactly what the situation was. All we know is that there were some words from Cush that were slanderous. And we know that Cush was a Benjaminite. But we don't find him anywhere else in the Bible. um, So we just don't know much more about him. We just know his words bother, bothered David. So what I want to do is I want to lift from this psalm four headings that help us understand uh, how we can relate to, to David's, um, David's situation. First of all, we see the reality of slander. The reality of slander. Notice here he says the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Then he says in verse 1, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Why? He's taking refuge from the words of, of, of Cush. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So he sees Cush as an enemy that wants to destroy him. But what is the weapon that Cush is employing? It's not a sword, not a bow and arrow. The weapon that Cush is using to destroy David is the weapon of speech, right? He's using his words. To destroy David. And so we see here the reality of slander, and we can connect with that very quickly because uh, all of us can experience that reality because we live in a fallen world. We deal, and this is in your notes, we deal with slander from individuals. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, uh, the Apostle Paul 
warns the, the believers there in Ephesus to put aside slander. He's saying, you're believers in Christ now. Slander should not characterize who you are. So stop slandering. Stop saying false things about others. Stop using words to tear other people down or to destroy people. And he was saying that to Christians. Did you know that even Christians can slander? Did anybody know that? that that's... Do you know that slander can even happen in churches? Do you know that? It can. And, and, and we understand what David's going through here because we can deal with slander from individuals. We also deal with slander from enemies of the gospel. Uh, over in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 11, and in John, 5, John 15, when Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room, he basically says, there are going to be people that come against you because of me. And he says, the way they're going to come against you is they're going to say false things about you. They're going to slander you. And so those who follow Christ should not be surprised when those who do not follow Christ use words as a weapon to marginalize, to demean, to destroy, whatever the case may be. We will deal with slander from enemies of the gospel. We see it all the time. But also we deal with slander from the accuser. His name is Satan. Over in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. That means that he loves to come against Christians by accusing them, and usually that entails Satan bringing up their past. And what Satan likes to do is he likes to say false things about people's past. He likes to say, your past makes you worthless. Your past is still being held against you. So you should not be able to, to let go of the guilt and the shame because your past is still there and it's, and it's uh, always going to follow you. And Satan uses slander to make us believe that when the Bible says that when we are saved, we are forgiven of all of our sin, that our sins are cast into a sea of forgetfulness never to be held against us again. Amen? It's really good news. But Satan likes to lie about that. He gets us to, he gets us to, to a place where we are paralyzed by our past when it's been forgiven. And we're under guilt and shame when we are forgiven. And when Satan slanders, we should call it what it is. It is deceit. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. If God was slandered in Eden, and he was by Satan, we shall surely be maligned in this land of sinners. Gird up your loins, ye children of the resurrection, for this fiery trial awaits you. In other words, we should not be surprised when slander comes knocking at our door. But here's the deal. Slander is very dangerous. Very, it's very concerning. Look what David says there in verse 2. Again, Cush is using words. And look what David says about these words. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. In other words, David is saying the, the, the result of this slander, the result of this enmity, the result of these words that Cush is using will be destruction. It's going to destroy my life. Slander is very dangerous. You've heard the quote has been attributed to different people. There's some debate over who said it first or who said it or who said it originally. A lot of times you see it attributed to Mark Twain. But the quote goes like this. A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting his boots on. You ever heard that? 
slander, deceit, lies can travel very, very quickly. And that quote came into existence before social media and the internet and text messaging. Now, you're talking about a truth spread, I mean, a, a, a lie spreading rapidly? I mean, anybody, anywhere in the world with internet access can put something on the internet, true or false, no editorial process, put it on the internet, and anyone that has internet access can read it if they get to that site, right? And it's being used to, to promote slander. We see now uh, social media mobs. They get some little piece of information and they, and they, they jump on that situation even though they don't know the whole story. And they, and they use the pressure of the mob to try to get somebody, um, get somebody uh, um, taken care of or, or to change someone's situation or to punish them for what they perceive as their wrong actions. And so slander is very, very dangerous. It's a big Big deal. James Montgomery Boyce says this, Slander like this was a serious matter for one in David's position. It was not trivial. Look, look at me, folks. Slander is not trivial. Boyce goes on to say, We tend to regard most verbal accusations as unimportant, at least when they are directed at someone else. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, we say. But lies are not always inconsequential, even for us, and they were certainly not a matter of unimportance for King David. Listen to what he says. The king was the chief administrative and legislative officer for Israel. He was responsible for seeing that right was upheld, that justice was dispensed, an accusation that attacked his integrity undermined the moral basis of, of the kingdom. It was a first step to moral anarchy and possibly armed rebellion. So it's a big deal. And David's feeling the weight of these words, these, these harmful words that Cush the Benjaminite was speaking. So we see here the reality of slander. It hurts. It is serious. It is important. And a by way of application, it ought never to come from our mouths. Amen? Don't let our tongues be used to put forth that kind of speech that can harm and hurt other people. Number two, we see the refuge from slander. The refuge from slander. David proclaims his innocence in the matter. Look what he says in verse 3. Oh, Lord, my God, if I've done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause... Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let them trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Say law. In other words, David's saying, God, you know the truth. You know what Cush is saying is slander. You know it's wrong. You know it's not accurate. You know my life. And, and if, I'm not, if I don't have integrity in the situation, then let my enemies overtake me. But God, you won't let that happen because you know that I am walking through the situation uh, with uh, integrity, And so he proclaims his innocence in the matter. And, and then David recognized that God was the one that could truly help him. There in verse 1, look how he starts. O oh Lord, that's the covenant name of God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's the constants YHWH, just the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush when God said, who should, I mean, when Moses said, who should I tell them sent me to, to Egypt? 
Uh, some people pronounce it as Yahweh. We don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but that's the, the, the divine name of God, the covenant name of God. And so he says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers and deliver me. He realized God could truly help him. And that phrase there, I take refuge, is a perfect tense verb. And here's what that means. It means that, that David had gone to, to God as his refuge in the past, and the reality and implication of that is still carried on in his life in the present. So he's saying, God, you've, all, you've always been my refuge, and you're going to keep being my refuge. And would you help me as my refuge in this situation? And look what he says in verse 10. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is my shield. That, that phrase or word shield speaks of protection, right? Protection from harm. And God, you're my shield in this. The words are serious. They are, they are, they are harmful. They could destroy. But God, you are my shield. Protect me in this situation. So we know that the refuge from slander is God. When you find yourself the victim of words that are wrong and words that are harmful and words that are hurtful, go to God. Take it directly to God and let Him help you in the midst of that situation. Because, third, God is the righteous judge of slanderers. In other words, He'll handle it. Look what it says in verse, verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your what? What's the word there? Anger, in your anger. So the implication is that, that deceitful, backbiting, harmful words anger God. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the people to be gathered about you over it return on high. Look in verse 8. The Lord judges the people's. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil or the wicked come to an end. May you establish the righteous. You test the minds and hearts. O righteous God. Then he says again, my shield is with God. But look at verse 11. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. God feels the indignation of man's evil. It's an offense to a holy God. And he says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, prepare his sword for battle is what he's saying there. Prepare his sword for, for judgment. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. And so David is saying this, God takes this seriously. You don't want to be the person who stands before a holy God and... And it's, and, and it's speaking slanderous words. So, when you are slandered, leave it in God's hands. P.C. Craigie says this, Whereas a false accusation may deceive and convince our fellow human beings, it cannot deceive God. Right? God knows. God knows uh, the truth. Hold your place. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me very quickly. 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice what the Bible says in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now look at verse 23. When he was reviled, 
he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so uh, Peter writes, Jesus shows you how to suffer. He shows you how to walk through hardship, even reviling and slander. He says instead of retaliation, Jesus just placed it in the Father's hands and trusted the Father with it. And when you are slandered, when I am slandered, we need to learn to leave it in God's hands. Romans 12 tells us, 17 through 21, he can and will deal with it better than you. In Romans 12, the, the, uh, the insight is that when we are hurting, we want to retaliate. We want to get our own vengeance, right? You say something about me, I say something about you. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. That's, that's the way we want to deal with it um, in, our, in our flesh. In fact, I love Westerns. And the reason I love Westerns is because the bad guy always gets it in the end, and it feels so good, right? The guy's so bad. He's, you know, the bad guy's so bad. He's so mean. He's hurt so many people that at the end, the bad guy gets it, and you're like, yes, I like it, right? It feels good. And when we find ourselves in a situation of conflict, our flesh wants to feel that feeling, and we want to take matters out of God's hands, who is all-knowing and perfect and the perfect judge. And we want to take it into our own hands and try to deal with it. And that just never turns out well. And so when you're slandered, leave it in God's hands. He can and will deal with it better than you. But here's the second thing. It doesn't mean we're not concerned about right and wrong or justice. We should pray for God's justice to be brought to bear on the situation. Pray that the truth will win out. Pray that falsehood will uh, surface and those who are speaking falsehood will be caught in their lies. In fact, in, back in Psalm chapter 7, speaking of those who speak falsehood in verse 16, he says, His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull is violence to sins. In other words, a lot of times people who are trying to harm you will... will uh, They'll get what they deserve. <laughs> they'll, they'll fall prey to the same thing they're trying to use to destroy you. And so we should pray for God's justice to be brought to bear on the situation. Back in uh, Psalm 7, verses 12 and 13, notice the fury of God's wrath. It mentions a sword, a bow and arrow, right? God deals seriously with these things, the fury of his wrath. But also, did you notice this in verse 12? There's some hope for sinners, there's hope for slanders. Because look what he says in verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Which means if a man does repent, he can be delivered from God's judgment his sin deserves. Everybody see that? If he doesn't repent, it won't turn out well. But repentance is an option for the wicked. Aren't you glad? Because I've done some wicked things in my life. Has anybody here done any wicked thing? I'm the only wicked person. I've done some things that have been disobedient to God. And I'm glad that repentance, forgiveness, mercy, and grace were an option for me. And, and so even in the midst of this, this prayer for God's judgment on Cush and these slanderers and these enemies, he does... He does you know, make the point that, hey, repentance is an option for them. And so we should pray for God's justice while hoping for sinners to be saved. Now, how do we do that? How do you pray for God's justice while desiring that sinners be saved? You ever thought about that one? 
Many of the Psalms are, and we'll get through this as we work our way through the Psalms, many of the Psalms are labeled imprecatory Psalms. And what that means is the psalmist is praying God's judgment on people, specific people. God, would you judge them? Would you, would you uh, deal with their evil and their sin? Imprecatory psalms. And some are very direct imprecatory psalms, praying down God's wrath and judgment. So the question is, how do you pray against evil and pray for God's perfect justice while still desiring that people repent and give their lives to Jesus? How do we process, we talked about this a little bit last week, how do you process God hating the sin but still loving the sinner enough to send Jesus to die for them? How do we, how do we process that in our heart and in our life? Well, notice there, there are two types of justice, and this is important for you and I to understand. The first is ultimate or eternal justice. Ultimate or eternal justice. This is God's final verdict on those that stand before him. The Bible tells us over in Revelation uh, chapter 20 that uh, at the end of all things, there will be a great white throne of judgment. People who are unsaved will stand before that great white throne of judgment. A book will be opened up with their deeds perfectly recorded. No one gets away with anything, and they will be judged for their sin. And those who do not know Christ will go from the, the judgment uh, before the great white throne to be cast into the eternal lake of fire, that awful place called hell, and will be there forever and ever and ever and ever. Eternal separation, eternal torment. That's scary. So there is eternal justice, ultimate justice. In other words, no one gets away with anything. And there are some that push back against this doctrine that teach there's not a such thing as eternal judgment or eternal torment or eternal separation from God. And my, my response to that is, well, I guess Hitler got away with it. Right? Wreaked havoc, did what he wanted to do, killed millions of people and took his life and he, you know, he got away with it, right? No, no. No one gets away with anything. There is a, an ultimate eternal reckoning that will happen at the end of all things. So there's ultimate eternal justice. But there's also another category, and I call this limited earthly justice. Limited earthly justice. In other words, that God will deal with things on this earth as we live our lives. That God will step in and deal with certain issues and certain people in a limited earthly way that justice will be served on this earth. So how do we put all that together? Look at your, look at your notes. We should love sinners and desire that they find Jesus so that they can escape the ultimate justice of God. In other words, we don't want anybody to go to hell. We want people to, to come to know Christ, to repent and be saved so they can go to heaven when they die, have their sins washed away and be forgiven. We, we desire that people come to a saving relationship with Christ and escape ultimate judgment in that awful place called hell. At the same time, look at the next uh, sentence. At the same time, we should pursue and desire earthly justice. We should want bad guys to get caught and to be punished for the bad things that they do. We can still pray for someone's ultimate salvation in heaven while championing earthly justice being carried out on this earth. Does that make sense? 
And by the way, Christians ought to be, lead the way in that. We ought to be leaders in wanting to see justice carried out. Micah 6, 8. What's the Lord require of you, O oh man? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. In other words, do the right thing. And care about the right thing being done. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Romans 13 verses 1 through 4 tell us that God ordains government. He ordains things like a military and uh, a police force and, and, and those that protect uh, citizens from evil and from, from danger. The Bible even says in Romans 13 that the government is a sword that God wields to punish evildoers. And we should say, we want justice done on this earth. We want bad guys to be caught and innocent people to be protected and, and, and justice to be done on this earth. And so I'm, I'm trying to help you to see there's not a conflict between desiring justice to be done while still being concerned that those who are far from God can repent and be saved. Does that make sense? That may mean you, uh, you have a, a friend, an acquaintance, co-worker, whatever, and they murder somebody, and you go visit them in jail, and you cry with them and weep with them, and you share the gospel with them, and they get saved. They say, I want to, I, I, I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. I recognize the, 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 the awful things that I've done. And they pray and receive Christ, and they're Christians. They're going to heaven when they die, but guess what? They're going to stay in jail. They're going to experience the consequences of their decision. That's earthly justice. But by God's grace, they would have been saved from eternal destruction. And so David here is praying for the for the righteous judge of slanderers to do his thing. He's praying for God to bring about justice while still saying, hey, repentance is on the table. Repentance is an option for those evildoers. I think that's very, very interesting uh, to see. So we see the reality of slander. We see the refuge from slander. We see the righteous judge of slanderers. God takes it seriously. When someone slanders, God will deal with it in his own way and in his own time. Uh, I'll say one more thing. Over in 1 Corinthians 3, there's a... We're going to bring this back to Christians and the church. 1 Corinthians 3, the Bible talks about God's love for his church. and He calls, he calls his church there the temple and he talks in that chapter about how God will deal with a person that destroys his church or destroys his temple. He'll take that seriously. So what does that say if someone weaponizes words or weaponizes slander or weaponizes gossip or weaponizes murmuring to bring down a church? I'm telling you, God will deal with it. He will deal with it seriously. God does, not, um, God does not look away from his bride being affected by evil, deceitful, slanderous words. It's a warning, I think, for churches to understand. But fourth and last, there's the rejoicing of the slandered. The rejoicing of the slandered. Uh, so David, he's, he's been slandered, 
Cush has used his words. David's in a tough spot. He feels the pressure, the weight, the danger. But look what he says in verse 17. I love how the, the psalm ends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I've been slandered. Someone said something bad about me. Thank you, Lord. Where's that come from? Why in the world would he thank God in the midst of this awful situation? In light of God's character and God's help, he was grateful. And in light of God's character and God's help, we should be grateful. Look what he says. I'll give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. God is right. God is just. God always does the right thing. God knows what's going on in this situation. God knows the truth. I've placed it in his hands. He'll deal with it so I can say, thank you, God, even in the midst of this slander. Thanks, God. He knew that God would eventually deal with it in his way and in his time. But here's the second takeaway. When we are slandered, we should praise the Most High God who reigns over all. We should praise the Most High God, my, Most High God who reigns over all. Look how he ends the psalm. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord. Now look how he ends it. The Most High. This is not a real common title throughout the Scripture. You don't see it a whole lot. El Elyon. The Most High. But he ends the psalm this way. And it's a reminder that over the, the deceit and the, the, the scheming of man, God is ruling and reigning. He is God most high, and he will deal with all of that in his way, in his time. And, and David says, I'm going to sing praises to the name of the Lord most high. He could even praise God in the midst of the slander because he trusted God that much. So, we see the reality of slander, we see the refuge from slander, the righteous judge of slanderers, and the rejoicing of the slandered. Next time you find yourself in a situation and someone has said something unflattering about you or wrong or deceitful about you, go read Psalm 7. Mark in your Bible. Write in big words. This is a psalm when you're slandered. And read it. And remember, David went through the same thing. And remember that the God who took care of David will also take care of you. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.